Well, we will uh, be wrapping up our series on Ecclesiastes these next two weeks, uh, this week and next, and I get the privilege of of uh, wrapping those up for us. It's been a good series. And Ecclesiastes is an unusual book. It's probably not one many of you have read before until now. We simultaneously have multiple studies going on in the church that are working through Ecclesiastes as we've been preaching through it. And so um, Proverbs, we did back in the spring. Proverbs is a very practical book in the uh, practical book in the Bible, in the wisdom literature that sort of kind of gives you a path and says, in general, this is how the world operates. If you, uh, a gentle answer will turn away wrath, uh, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverbs is a practical, but Ecclesiastes is not real practical. Ecclesiastes is actually, this is in general, what Proverbs says in general, this is the way the work. It says there's a path, but not every time that you give a gentle answer, uh, sometimes people will still be mean. It doesn't, it's not a formulaic Proverbs, is it? And Ecclesiastes kind of comes along and says, uh, and deals with the exceptions. Whereas Proverbs is more day-to-day and practically thinking, so Ecclesiastes is for the thinker. And there's a teacher called the teacher in the Proverbs, and he's contemplating life. It's the deep thinking in life and and processing uh, the world and what it's like when you encounter things that aren't just normal and uh, what the world is like. So uh, that's where we find ourselves, and we're going to wrap it up in these next two weeks. And it's been, a, I feel like, a wonderful series. I hope you've enjoyed, enjoyed it and studying it yourself. Uh, but let me just offer this in kind of describing Ecclesiastes. Here's the first verse is how it starts off. I'll remind you those. And we've chosen to not sequentially work through Proverbs. We've been kind of hitting the topics because they repeat a lot. So uh, you'll see I'm finishing up in Ecclesiastes 3, right? So uh, because of what it touches at the end as well. But anyway, here's how the book kicks off. Here's a couple of the verses in the very first chapter. What the teacher says, some think this teacher is Solomon. I lean towards that. But neither here nor there's a lot of debate around that. Solomon, if he writes it or not. But here's the thing. Look what it says. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, verse 1. Then verse 2 says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. I have seen everything under the sun, and that under the sun phrase is important. Looking at the world as it is in this fallen world, that's what he's talking about. It's a phrase repeated, I forget how many times, tons of times in it. He says, I've seen everything that's under the sun that you can see on earth, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. All right, you see the strong look at the world, and he's processing it and said, I've seen this, it's like hevel, this wind, you can't grasp it, it goes away. There's no meaning, there's nothing you can gain in the earth if you stare at it and really think about it. All right, that's, um, we, um, let me just land there and say, that's not going to be true. But it feels like it. And if you don't know the Lord, then it's really hard to draw any other conclusions. This is basically where he goes, if you don't know God, there's no way to really figure out what meaning is. And he's looking at it with an honest, honest approach at this world. As a matter of fact, he starts off in the first and looks at creation and is like, listen, Creation is still working and going, and rain comes, and it goes in the rivers, and it goes to the rivers, and it goes back out the ocean, and back up, it just keeps doing it. It doesn't care about us. And then uh, he looks at time and chance. He's like, we look around, and there's things that you can't explain, and I can't explain. Out of nowhere, we're doing normal life. It doesn't make sense that someone gets diagnosed with this, or someone dies. And death is another thing. It's like it comes to everyone. Even our passage this morning that says, we're just like the rest of the animals. We die. I mean, you see how you can kind of spiral and see those things, and it's true. And there's injustice in the world. And things don't seem to get fixed. It just seems like vanity. Why even bother? Why care? 
At one point in chapter 2, he says, and by the way, just in case I'll try to figure out for you guys where we're meaning is, I have the resources, and I'm going to go try all these things in the world and see if they'll give me meaning and won't be like the wind going away. So he tries intimacy and sex and wealth and indulgence and pleasures, all those. Chapter 2 tells us that, and he's like, he gets into that, and I tried it all, and I had all those resources to do it more than anyone, and it remains nothing. Nothing under the sun seems to matter. It's a hopeless place to kind of describe the world. Does anything matter? Now, all throughout the book, he kind of comes up for air, and he begins to show us that he does. He doesn't just stay in that helpless place and futile. But I don't know, if, at least we as Christians have got to be honest that Mondays keep coming. For me, Sundays keep coming, and things just kind of keep going. Is it really going anywhere? And you don't feel those things and it doesn't at least feel futile, then I wonder if you got a pulse. And then we finish with his answer, and it's interesting that it's only about four verses at the end of that, but listen, this is the last two verses of the whole book. So it starts out, nothing matters, and then it says, then the end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. So we'll be looking at that next week. Fear God and being all of him, here's the conclusion after this long experiment of looking at everything under the sun, for God will bring, and here's why, here's why I do everything, here's why I worship God and do it, for God will bring everything into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So I don't know about you, but if you look at the world and you feel the futility and the harshness and the difficulties and death and pain and things happen to us, we don't why, would you have ever concluded that the thing that you needed to know was that God will bring everything under judgment? Every hidden thing will be brought to judge. That's the hope. That's the place he answers. The good answer. It's a good answer. It's a great answer. But is that the answer you would have had? Not me. I don't like to mention love. The world seems to have no meaning. I, I didn't know God loves me. I mean, what would you have picked? What information would you have wanted to know? And yet what the teacher concludes, what I hope we will learn and you and I will figure out is that one of the most beautiful and kind and good truths that we can believe and understand about God is that he is judge. And he will judge all things. I know that seems a little counterintuitive. This week in the studies, in the studies I'm a part of and lead, whatever, I asked the opening question in our studies, what connotation or images or feeling do you have about the word judge? Now, we didn't work it out this way. God did, but Bruce is actually a judge who led our service this morning. He's a family court judge. He's in one of the studies. And, um, but we asked the question, I asked the two studies in our studies. I don't know what the other studies did. What do you feel about judge? You know what everybody felt? Negative. When they think of judge, they think Scary verdicts coming down. I've done something wrong. We had a long list, black robes and all that. Actually, Bruce, as a judge, had a lot to offer to our study. He told him one of them, he said, listen, um, most people are intimidated by a judge. He's like, he knows that. It's very intimidating to encounter me, especially you don't want to go to his because you go to him if you've been doing something bad, all right? So, um, but he actually described and told us that the whole courtroom is designed to show the power of the judge, that the desk is high and that the, he's behind, the gavel hits and, the, and there's guards around him. And he sits in a place of authority and renders decisions. And so, I don't know if you're like me. I immediately think about my speeding tickets or whatever I've messed up on and judges make me nervous. That I have a negative view. 
But there is a positive sense to judges, by the way. Even we see that. The only courtroom that I have ever been in where a verdict was being issued was in a federal court in Ethiopia when I went to get my son. And I walked in that courtroom with my wife, and a federal judge was there, and she was this lady. And I longed for her to execute discernment and have the authority and the power to execute something good that I longed for. And she did. That's what judges do, by the way. The Bible speaks of different ways the word judge, but in sense, it's this, is that we need someone to discern and evaluate the situation, what's right. We need them to have the authority, the position, to, 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 uh, to um, uh, have the right to execute a decision of what they figure out and the power to do so, that they can carry it through. And I'm so thankful that that judge examined this long case and we put our whole lives out in front of who we are and read it and discerned and said, um, and discerned that this was a good thing for Xander Opes a Terrell to become a Terrell and have the power and the authority to declare it true. I'll never forget the day when she sounded. It was the greatest, one of the greatest sounds I've ever heard. And then another thing that came out, so... <laughs> in our studies is that we do have, there, there is a judge. We understand that judge can be good. We mostly probably, if you're like me, think of it negatively. But the other thing that came out in our studies is this, is that we also, we also want to be judge, if we're honest. We either don't think the judge is doing what he should. His discernment is not right. We always want to be judge. And um, so, as we go into this passage this morning, um, I just want you to be realize that you and I have a very wonky, if you will, clunky relationship with the reality of judge and judgment. Sometimes it's positive, sometimes it's negative, sometimes we wonder if God is even, if there is even a judge out there, and sometimes we want to be judge ourselves. But I want you to also know this, that being relating to a judge is central to our very existence. The fact that it's always it's a part, it's something that we long for. The fact that some other sort of judge will affect how fast you drive today and not, you're thinking about the judge when you determine how fast am I going to ride, drive. Whether or not you'll obey your parents and listen to them, you're thinking about judgment and the judge whether and why you're so hard on yourself. Some of you are so critical. Some of us are so critical of ourselves. We're always rendering judgment. Some of us are so critical of others because we think we're judge. Some of the reason you try so hard to be liked by so many people because you long to be judged correctly. Why some of us feel forgotten because there's not a judge who sees and is executing and mindful of my needs. That's why something bad happens to you and you wonder, what did I do? Your first thought is, what did I do wrong? Because this thing has happened to me. It's because you got a real bad, wrongy relationship to judge and yet judge is central. The idea of judge is central to how you live, breathe, and function in this world.
and injustices are all around us. We feel it all the time. We see them. We hurt for them. Sometimes they feel like they're not going to change. So I think you admit and agree that we, it's having a right understanding of God as judge is central to our being. So we'll look to Ecclesiastes to help us. We long for a judge, but we have an awkward relationship with the idea of a judge. Sometimes we're negative. Sometimes we're positive. Sometimes we wonder if there is even a judge, and sometimes we want to be judge. We'll look to Ecclesiastes and its point. Now, we, I can't, this morning, just a caveat here, just I can't teach everything about God and the judgment and the judgment seat. I'm trying to render to you this morning what I believe Ecclesiastes points to about the aspects of God as judge. Based upon its context, based upon what it's saying and what it's doing and where it is, why judge is the thing that the, the whole book finishes with. So does that make sense? I can't do all of the judge. So dismiss your what about the white throne? And what about this? And what about the animal? Just hear from Ecclesiastes why judge makes sense to the futility that we feel in the world. Lord, help me to do that. Would you help me to uh, exposit your word here as we work through it? And may it speak to our minds and our hearts. Would you grant us? I, I pray at the end that we could sing in a way that we relish. And, and we begin, would you make us have a better relationship with the reality that you're judge? Amen. All right, we'll, we'll dive in here. We're just going to answer the five questions, who, what, when, where, why. I don't have them. They're up there on the outline for you. We're going to work through those from our passage and hopefully uh, finish with how it benefits us there. But let me remind you, as we zoom into context here of, of chapter 3, uh, we're going to zoom in, and this is where there's judgments mentioned, the word judgments mentioned at the very end, which we've had, chapter 12, the last verse of the book. It's also mentioned uh, in chapter um, 8, but we didn't bring that one this morning. And then here, there's a, a verse, a zinger in the middle of our passage in Ecclesiastes 3 about, about judgment. So that's why we here we are. But let me just give the context of chapter 3. So in the first part that we didn't read, the first nine verses of Ecclesiastes 3, is this famous, there's a t this time, uh, there's a season for everything. And it's this famous, which you'll hear at weddings, and people think of it as being a pretty, a beautiful passage in the scriptures. There was this famous song by the birds, was that who sang it, right? Uh, there is a season, turn, turn, that, that, whatever. So there's time, there's a time for death and a time for living, there's a time for uh, laughter, there's a time for sadness. It goes through all these times that they have. That's the first things, and that it lists. And then also after our passage that we read this morning in, in verse 4, uh, chapter 4, it starts off with oppression. And uh, that there's oppression. And where are the people who are being oppressed in the world? Who do they cry out to? It seems no one is listening to them. So the context here is looking at history and time and oppression and things that are difficult going on. And so in the midst of that, as we get to our first verses here in verse 9, when you see there in verse 9, it says, What gain has the worker from his toil? Um, he's, he's asking the question, the seasons kind of keep going, and we're not in control of these seasons, and there's a time for this and a time for that. And so what, what's the purpose? I can't change the season of war and peace. They keep coming. That's one aspect of it. There's multiple aspects, and I'll highlight those as we go. But the first thing we learn, so you need to know that that's the context of where we are as we come into it. Um, he's thinking about oppression and time and history. So first, our first question, judge, and what do we learn from Ecclesiastes? From this passage, we learn the who. Who, who is the judge? All right? Where do we see that? Verse 17. Notice as he's contemplating this uh, history and time and the rhythms and seasons, 
he eventually, and he's also in verse 16 contemplating that there's righteousness, that, 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 uh, that evil and wickedness happen probably, if we think so, in verse 16 he's saying that even in the court systems there's injustice and there's wickedness. And maybe even in the church, some theologians say, where there should be righteousness, there's injustice, right? So he gets to this verse 17 and we learn, but who's the judge? In verse 17 it says, I said in my heart, God will judge. So who is judge? God's judge. I know that seems overly simple this morning, but that's important to understand. Ecclesiastes 12, 14, the last verse also says, For God will bring every deed into judgment. Who does the judging? God does. Now listen, I can't get into Matthew 7, don't judge me and I judge you and don't judge me and all that. We're talking about final judgment. We're talking about who has the last word, who is the real judge. It's God. He's the true judge. All right? And so we see that. He's appealing to that. Just so you know, the New Testament affirms this. We later learn. He doesn't know this. The writer doesn't. If it's Solomon, they don't know that Jesus is coming. They don't know who the Messiah will be. But we learn in the New Testament, you'll see here in John 5, 27, that actually the judge will be Jesus himself. Look at John 5, 25 through 27. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now there here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, this is Jesus speaking, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment. Who did authority given to judgment? Who was it given to? Jesus himself, because he's the Son of Man. Then Paul tells us 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 10, so whether we're at home or we're away, we make it our aim to please him. Talking about God, talking about Christ, for we must also befear be, appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for he has done the body, whether good or evil. Do you see where do we go? Who's in the judgment seat? It's Jesus. So the Father has says, who will judge the earth? He's given that role to Jesus. He's will be in the judgment seat. He's the judge. God is the judge, and then we learn later that that. Next, then why? Why does he get to be judge? I know that seems overly simple. But why does he get to be judge? Well, here's from our passage. Look with me. Here's the answer. I'll give it to you. He gets to be judge because he's creator and king. He created the world. I mean, if we were just to pause and to think that we don't know everything. In order to give a perfect judgment, you have to be able to know everything. And we can't even handle knowing everything. And Bruce himself would admit that when he renders his own judgments here on earth, they're limited. He doesn't know everything. He's just heard what he's heard in the courtroom. But to be the true judge, you've got to know everything. And by the way, Genesis told us we can't handle knowing everything. But why is he judged? Because he's the creator. He's the king. And the passage and uh, Koaleth, the teacher, he alludes to that in that. Look, start in verse 10. I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. You see that? Who's determining who does what? The king is, the one who made us. You see that? He has made everything beautiful in his time, and also he's put eternity into man's heart. Yet it's to be cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Do you see that? Who made everything beautiful? Not me and you. He did. Why? Because he created it. He's the king, and he rules over it. And then why do we have a desire that's transcendent? And Why do we have a desire? We didn't come up with that. He puts it in us. He puts a desire for eternity in our hearts. The king does that, not us. And yet, so he cannot find out. And yet, so in sounds a little bit like the garden here. 
I'm going to let you do a whole lot, but I'm going to put this tree in the middle of the garden to remind you you can't handle everything. You're not God. I'm king. You're not. This is to remind you of that, and that's a good thing because you can't handle being king. We'll notice that here. I put eternity in his heart. Kind of a special relationship with man, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. You and I can't handle that. He's God. We're not. He created it. I perceive that there's nothing better than to be joyful. Verse 13. We'll go to verse 13 here. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure. This is God's gift to man. Look who's doing the giving. Not us. God is. Verse 14. I perceive whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. God's doing the work. You see, and he's it. And you can't add to it. He doesn't need us. He's doing the work and we don't add to it. Nor can we take away from it. Now put that in your pipe and smoke it. We don't add to what God's doing. Whew, that's a deep thought. Look at verse 15. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. You see that? He, he, it's already, he decided. It's already been. It's going to ever be. You see the sovereignty of God. In order to be able to discern, you must have all authority and power. And the creation story tells us that. That God is creator. He has all the authority. He was before all things, and in him all things hold together. He spoke the world by his existence. Just as that judge had the power in the country of Ethiopia to execute and had the authority to declare it, so does God in all creation. He answered. There was that odd passage, and I'm not going to dig into it, but you thought it saying kind of bleak when it says, and we're kind of like the beast. I said in my heart uh, that the children of man, God is testing them that they may see that themselves are but beasts. That's an interesting, interesting thought, right? That's a weird, and it winds up, man, we're just kind of like the beast. Well, one of the things you can learn that I feel like I have learned from Ecclesiastes is one of the things it's trying to teach you is that there's a king, and there's a judge, and there's a God, and you're not him. That's one of the themes Ecclesiastes. And sometimes you may think you can get so smart and discern the world, but really you're more like the beast than you are like God. You're more frail than you realize. And so this, that whole dialogue or that whole verse there is like, I'm, it's more of a putting us in our place in a sense to remember that we, we die, we have limits. We're not king. Pretty strong way to say it. But it makes the point. And remember me telling you about the seasons thing. There's a time for death. There's a time for living. There's a time for peace and a time for war. And so in that beautiful chapter 3, the early the verses we didn't read, I mean, some, there's multiple purposes for saying that. Some of the reason is that we just need to know when we go through bad things that it's pretty normal to go through bad seasons. That's a good thing in Ecclesiastes 3. But I think a secondary, which is just like Ecclesiastes, there are all kinds of layers of truth. But the other reason it puts those seasons in there is to remind you, hey, you can plant and harvest, but God determines when the seasons go. You're also not king. These seasons are changing, and you get into your Proverbs working and doing all your life and everything, but then you realize, wait a minute, things are, I'm not really in control of this universe. I'm more like the Beast. He's the judge. 
So the who, the why, why does he get to judge? Because, and what Ecclesiastes is because he's king, he's the creator of that. So then what does he, what does he, what does he judge? What do we learn in Ecclesiastes and what does he cling to? And notice this in verse 17 and then our last verse of chapter 5, 317 and 1214. I said in my heart, I will judge the righteous and the wicked. So Christians and non-Christians will be judged by Jesus. Everybody will stand before Jesus. And then verse 14 says, Every deed into judgment and every secret thing, whether good or evil. So everything you've ever done, seen, unseen, whether it was good, nobody saw it, whether it was evil, whatever you've done, it'll be laid before this courtroom with Jesus on the throne. You already feel that? A little dread, a little thankfulness. That finally everything will come out. There's something good about everything being exposed. It's finally freeing. So that's what he'll expose. Then when? So when will it happen? I'm sorry. Every time I put my hand in my pocket, that's what happens. So I'll stop putting my hand in my pocket. But then the when from a passage in the same two verses, future. It's in the future. I said in my heart, God will Judge the righteous and the wicked. Luke 12, 14, God will bring. Now, it is fixed when there will be a final, final judgment. That day will come. And some judgments are impartially rendered here on earth. Sometimes justice happens. But part of the Ecclesiastes is like, not all the time. We live in a lot of things that are undone and aren't dealt with. But what Ecclesiastes is referring to is saying is that one day there will be a judgment where everything will finally be dealt with. And it's interesting when you think about that, when you realize, if I were to look back and think about when Jesus, this idea of a time, so in Ecclesiastes 3, there's a time for this and a time for that. Well, guess what Jesus says when he comes on the scene? He actually says, and Paul says, uh, or Paul, Jesus says, there's a time. There's a time given to me. A time and hour is coming. One guy I was reading was talking about when Legion, the demons, remember the demoniac who encountered and had a bunch of demons encountered Jesus. They were coming across the sea and they saw him. Does anybody remember? You remember, remember what the demons said to Jesus when he started to speak to them? They said, the time is not here. They knew the time. They're like, whoa, 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 whoa. One day you're going to deal with us, but this isn't the time. That's an interesting thought, right? And Jesus actually affirms that. He renders a half judgment, right? He puts them in the pigs and they go into the sea. Let me just say to you, there is a day coming that has been appointed by God when everything will be judged. Not one word, not one thought, not one action, not one thing in this nine billion people planet that's ever been done by image bearers in all of history will go unjudged. A day has been appointed for that. 
Now, as heavy as that sounds and feels in the moment right now as we talk about it, the teacher remember saying, this is good news. That God will bring everything to judgment. That's our hope and futility. How is that good news to us? How? Here's some of the ways it helps us in the day by day. God sees you and sees everything you're doing. He never forgets you. You are not off his radar. And everything you think that he's missing and everything you're hurt over and everything you feel forgotten about, nope, it's not forgotten. Nope. He's taken account. He sees it all. Now, when you say that, it's like it, it feels like pressure, man. Now I've got to worry about everything I do. Isn't that what you conclude? That's what I conclude. Dang. <laughs> He's going to see everything. Can I even move? But don't you remember? What has been the conclusion of Ecclesiastes, I think, over nine times throughout the book? It was just here to eat and drink. joy. Meaning God is, he is going to take care of everything. And you can just put down your worry. And, and actually, you, you and I have great meaning now because everything we do matters. And it, but it, but it, it brings balance to that, that he's judged. And that's what Ecclesiastes tries to tell us, right? In one sense, it's like, I've been trying to, I have asked this question the whole time I've studied it. Some of the guys heard me. I said, does washing the dishes, I do a lot of that right now, does it matter? And God is judge, raises me up and gives me the fact that he will examine it, makes me think it does. It has purpose. And I can look to him who discerns and tells me and I can remember that I'm ruling, subduing the creation. He cares about how I do that. He cares about how I serve my wife and my family. He cares that I'm just faithful to what's before me. I can remember he'll examine that. But at the same time, some people, we take dishes and we're like, it's the most important thing in the world. You would think when a kid in my house puts a dish in the, in the, uh, in the, in the sink that they have just killed a whole slew of people. I mean, oh, don't put the dishes in there, right? And that's still a bad relationship with the gift, <laughs> if you will, of the simple things of dishes. And God's judgment balances us out. It doesn't, doesn't make all things necessarily equal because the law kind of shows us some things are worse than others if you break the law and do things like that. But it does mean that all things have an appropriate meaning. And everything that you and I do is given to God, from, is given to us from God. Enjoy and learn to embrace the gift, enjoy the gift, and embrace the sorrow of some of the gifts that are a little harder and relate to him in that way. And so it means great meaning that he's going to examine and see everything. And it does bring some motivation, right? It does 
how does this bring motivation? If the, law, if the world feels futile, and yet to know that God sees them and will handle everything, it kind of gives me some motivation. And just as it also does that he will examine anything, warns me, it warns me that I might, should not look at that on my screen when nobody's watching. And it warns me about the thoughts that I might should take captive when I'm thinking them, right? I mean, everything will be exhumed. So it has a, a good warning to it. It has, it's perfect because we want justice to be served. I want things to be made right. But it also gives us a hope. It gives us great hope. And probably the biggest struggle people have is that the fact that he will deal with it one day is like, but why didn't he deal with it now? I, mean, I don't know if you feel like that, but why don't you just go ahead and deal with it now? Why we got to wait? Why we got to wait to the end? The answer is I don't know. I really don't. Sometimes he does deal with it in this life. Sometimes he doesn't. But he fixes a place to say, hey, I will though. And so therefore you can enjoy life and the gifts that I give you and embrace the sorrow. and Whatever bad things you go through, I will be with you. Why? Because I see all things and I'm the judge and I will handle it. So enjoy the things that I give you and that I'm with you, and he will bring it. It's like this. I don't know how. When the things we are, I think about it this way. You know, Brittany now is teaching school, and so that's the first time she's done that. And uh, now there's some days on Mondays or on Friday or Sunday nights, she's like, oh, my gosh, we got to get them to the doctor and this, the doctor and this and them. And she is panicking as we go into the week because, right, she's at work now and can't kind of, has been a stay-at-home mom with multiple jobs before that and just kind of part-time. But she's like, ah. And for me to just come and say, hey, I'll take care of it. I can't take care of it right now. She's like, no, 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 do it now, do it now. I can't, but I promise you I'll take care of it. What does that do to her? Okay, we can move forward. I'm going to say this. One of my favorite things about Kevin Dilbeck is my associate pastor. And those of you who know him know him this. If he tells you he'll do something, it will be. He can't say that about me. <laughs> I show him the image of God in other ways. But he shows that to me as a brother. It's true. If he says it, it will happen. I don't have to worry. Now, I might be stressing in the moment. He may not do it right then, but I know it will take place. That's what God is saying to us in Ecclesiastes. There's a judgment coming, and I'm the judge, and I'll handle it. So... And our ultimate hope, the ultimate thing that gives us the greatest hope is where he decided to do it. And he'll do it before his throne. And he decided to go ahead and inaugurate that and pay and punish his son. He began dealing with the verdict at Calvary. And one day when the final judgment comes for each of us, justice will have been served, but not towards us, towards Christ. So that on that judgment day, when everything is examined, our record will actually be perfection. It will replace. Jesus' record will be replaced to ours. God made him a new no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. The judge became the justifier. so that you and I can have a not guilty verdict. 
We may look at Jesus and say, man, come on and fix this in the moment. Man, I wish you'd do this. You're the judge. I wish you'd go ahead and do that. And you know what he's saying? I may or I may not. But I have all discernment. And I discerned that there was something far greater and far more important that needed to be dealt with in your life than you knew it. You don't have all discernment. And that thing was sin. And that was your heart. And when I established myself as judge in the garden, they rebelled. But as a righteous judge, I'm still coming after you to fix that verdict that's against you. And I will make, I lost my train of thought right in the middle of that. That's got to be a demonic presence in here or something in that moment. <laughs> I pray against it. In that moment, Jesus will say, I stand you, you had a problem, there it is. Thank you, Jesus. You had a problem, and you didn't trust my discernment, and you thought these things in this world that are few are a bigger deal, but I have greater discernment, and I discerned that there was a greater need, and it was your sin, and I have dealt with that, and I have the authority to do it, and I have the power to do it, and my cross will hold you over until we get to the end of it. My cross is sufficient for you. And so therefore, I have said enough, and I've said enough in the Word, and I've said enough in my people. I've established a sacrament that you can fellowship on, remember this thing, and all these things. I have settled it. I had great discernment. I'm the king. Enjoy that freedom as you enjoy the gifts and the king. Amen. Let's pray. God, as we come before you this morning, God, would you, um, would you... Help, uh, help us to believe and treasure and may the greatest joy, one of the greatest joys of our life, that you are the judge. And may it warn us, but also free us to enjoy life. And may we thank you for it. We thank you that those who are followers of you have a certainty one day that you as the all-discerning, all-powerful, all-authority in heaven and earth, God will execute justice for us. And the justice that we deserved, we didn't get. It was given to your son Christ so that we might be free. Thank you for that. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.